spoilers, Daniel Radcliffe can't be used as an answer quite yet. In honor of the finest hours, what is your favorite boat movie? That's an excellent inside Sundance joke for two people who aren't at Sundance. Uh, I'm Katie Rich, and the answer is Titanic. Of course it's Titanic. And I'm Dave with the Seven, and considering how much of it takes place on a boat, I'm going to go with Apocalypse Now. Ooh. Yeah. Multiple boats. Yeah. Right? Multiple yeah, It's a movie boats. just about boating up a river. Yeah. And, uh... And, and into oneself. Yeah, it's true. Into the, into the dark heart of man. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine, too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 104 for Tuesday, January 26th. 2016. This is a historic day. On this day in 1934, the Apollo Theater opened in New York and made history in the process. Yeah. Um, I'm here with Dave Gonzalez, and it's just the two of us for now. In uh, the in the interspace, one of us is very pleasantly sitting in a fourth floor apartment in 60 degrees sunny weather, and his team's going to the Super Bowl. It's 60 degrees in Denver. <laughs> It's been really nice in Denver, which is why it's hilarious to know that you're in like 30 inches of snow. Yeah, I'm in an igloo, which is where I live now. Um, but no, the secret about blizzards in uh, New York City specifically is when you don't have a car and you don't have to shovel your sidewalk, it's great. You don't have to do anything. Like, it's the best natural disaster. Because <laughs> Good. nothing happens. <laughs> Two thumbs up for Jonas from Katie Ridge. Yeah, my apologies to anyone who was injured or their lives were threatened by the storm, but it has worked out pretty well for me. Uh, anyway, uh, Patches and David have <laughs> ventured off to Sundance. We'll hear from them later in the show, but Dave and I are basically running the ship for now. So Dave, in a fun twist, is going to read some reviews. Or one review. Hey, I'm a David too, occasionally. Yeah. Uh, so we have a review, uh, we have a couple new reviews. We're going to save some for when David Ehrlich is here to add his specific twist of them. This one is titled, It's Fine to Be Great, and it's from Hard in the City. It says, this is generally the first podcast I listen to when it appears in my feed. That's got to be worth five stars. David Ehrlich has, in the past, caused me to scream and hurl my phone across the room in frustration, and also made me unsubscribe mid-sentence on at least two occasions. <laughs> but that didn't last long. I've learned to filter David's opinions to suit my own tastes the same way I used to read Ebert's reviews with a specifically calibrated grain of salt, finding the commentary about the film enlightening and engaging, even if it does not correlate with my personal thumb up or thumb down. Or possibly I have grown into a curmudgeon since I first started listening way back in the Tarantino reference redacted days. <laughs> so don't worry, guys. I'm fully aboard the Ehrlich train these days and wouldn't dream of unsubscribing. David does still owe me a new phone, however. If Fighting wow. in the War Room were the Braiding Bunch, Katie would be Mike Brady, David would be Alice, Dave with a Seven would be Marsha, <laughs> Joanna would be Cousin Oliver, and Matt Patches would be Carol, Greg, Peter, Bobby, Jan, and Cindy. Sorry, I tried to compare this force into the characters of The Wizard of Oz, but none of you are brainless. And then I love Lucy, but it was too hard because everybody was Fred, and then I ran out of things with four characters. <laughs> One suggestion. Have you ever considered changing the title to The Joanna Robinson Podcast Hour, occasionally featuring Joanna Robinson? I think you'd get a lot more subscribers. My new goal in life is to someday make a film that at least one of you rips to shreds, probably David. Oh, and I don't think Matt Patches is doing this anymore, so let me just say, Babe, Pig in the City is a poem. End review. Great review. <laughs> that is exactly what a review should be. 
I'm up at midnight, I'm dipping off in my knees like a gun on a metal piece, I've been knees, I fist to my wrist. I'm lurking, serving all pussies who lack a purpose. I got them filled up. Dave, you have either humored me or had genuine curiosity about what the hell's been going on with the Oscars lately, and you know I don't turn down an opportunity to talk about the Oscars. So, Well, this is uh, one of the rare times where I'm actually interested in what's going on is interesting me because we've run across like social and racial politics, which is one of my like pet things to read about while I'm doing other things on the internet. So yeah. I'm actually happening across it more than... I thought, considering I don't usually put a lot of credence, as you say, in award shows. Yeah, well, we've kind of learned how poorly social and racial politics mix with uh, not just Hollywood, but specifically the people who vote in the Academy or feel inclined to speak out about it because everyone has surely heard about Oscar So White because all the acting nominees were white this year. And then it, uh, unlike last year when everyone kind of complained about it and nothing happened, this year the Academy basically vowed to make drastic changes to fix it. Uh, and then on Friday announced that they will make some uh, alterations to the way that they bring new members into the group and to how members vote. So that if you haven't been active in the film industry within the last 10 years, you still get to be an Academy member and you get screeners, but you're not allowed to vote. And the specifics of how that's going to work are still being worked out. And presumably lots of people will get exceptions and whatever. Can I immediately ask you a really nitty gritty question yeah. one that like popped into my mind? So if you're not active, you still get emeritus status, but mm-hmm. you don't get to vote and you don't pay dues. I don't know about the paying dues part. I don't, Wasn't that part of the letter that you don't that pay dues, be. but you don't have to? Because that, yeah. that's what seemed weird to me, because that seems like a weird incentive to to not be uh, not to just ministry. be like, I'm I'm an Academy Emeritus member. Yeah, it's on my resume, but I don't have get to vote all or pay the dues. Screeners. Yep. Yeah. And I liked that they had to promise in that letter, like, we will not take away your screeners. Please don't bomb us. Like, I know that is what you care about the most. <laughs> um, but since this all happened and even since before the Academy, uh, announce these new rules basically anytime anyone has done an interview with a famous person they've been asked that person been like what do you think about the oscar diversity uh problem and people who are smart say something boilerplate and that it can't be misconstrued about how they support diversity in the arts and they want to have a more diverse future or something like that and then there's very like, concerning what's happening yeah there, there's definitely there is a template for it which i know that uh brie larson's publicist has hammered into her brain by now just as an example of someone who wants an oscar this year and uh doesn't need to get caught up in one of these flaps but then people like charlotte rampling and julie delpy and i think uh ian Mc, not ian mckellen uh michael kane have managed to say just various ham-handed things about this whole thing and then at the same time, you've got all of these Oscar voters, anonymous and otherwise, being quoted in pieces from The Hollywood Reporter, basically saying repeatedly, I'm not racist, I voted for this one black person, therefore this isn't a problem. Which is such a big misunderstanding of how institutional racism works, how like racism works in general, like what a group does that I feel like, as I said, we've learned a lot about how <laughs> what Hollywood understands about race and social ju- social justice and all this is really limited and uh, fixing the Academy membership. As, but, uh, while I think what they decided to do is a really good idea, we can get into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got a long way to go before we could fix this. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, first of all, I don't know 
how quickly this is going to like recycle your votership membership. It seems like a good step in the right direction, but if the people that are still becoming new Academy members are still the nominees. You're still not nominating black people. So well, we've but, got I mean, at least but, another year. But to add, new, to add new members, it can also be like they're doing global outreach, basically, and like looking for people to add. The way that it works now is you have to be sponsored by an existing member. And now they're going to kind of reach out to someone like... I don't know, like Desiree Akhavan, who made appropriate behavior last year and is an Iranian-American filmmaker, and I have no idea if she would be in the Academy, but, like, that's someone who would, like, bring diversity, who is a promising filmmaker who might not necessarily know an Academy member who would sponsor her. Yeah, I mean, that's a good example of, like, making access, but you're still depending on the Academy having a wide enough view to pick people out, which we're just taking their word for that they're going to do their best, but we don't know what the scope of their... Well, they announce announce their new members every year. So when they induct a new class, we'll see who all they add. And you can, like, you know, quantify it. And there there have been various studies, which is how you learn that, like, what, 96% of the group is white right now or whatever. Um, So we'll be able to kind of see how it goes year by year. Um, But I think that gradual change is basically the only way you can do it. Like, there was talk about expanding the best picture field to a solid 10 again or the acting fields to six on the theory that like straight out of Compton would have gotten in if there'd been more room or Michael B. Jordan might have gotten in which really feels like a band-aid like there's no guarantee that there wouldn't just be slots that go to more white people mm-hmm. um, but that gradual expansion of the voting block does seem like the best way to bring more diversity just because you're bringing more diversity behind the scenes who might be more likely to acknowledge different movies yeah which is good and it, like a, it's making a place for somebody I'm just wondering if it's like you know, voting for a congressman with, like, gerrymandering, where it's, like, the nomination (laughs) system is broken, so therefore, like, if we're even going to think about fixing the whole system, that's where we have to start, and it's, like, how do we come up across these nominees? But then then it also feels heavy-handed, because then it's, like, well, should we have affirmative action nominees? And it's, like, oh, that's also stupid. Yeah. I'm not not sure. It just feels weird. It just feels like a mid-ground. What feels broken to you about the nomination system? I mean, I, do, I don't. I don't know. It just would seem that if everybody is kind of like passing the buck <coughs> with this sort of, uh, you know, I, I'm not racist. I voted for a black person. Yeah. And, and let's assume that those people are active Academy members and those people are still going to be in there. Like, how do you combat that? Do you wait nominees? Do you because it's still going to be the majority of the same guard that's making the nominations. And if it is a mathematical problem, that should be something that's addressed. Well, I mean, the most cynical way that I can look at it that I actually think would create change is that like this controversy has been really visible and there are going to be enough Academy members who really want to fix it. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. the same way that when 12 years a slave was being nominated, like there might've been people who were like, Oh, this is getting shoved down my throat, but I can't not vote for 12 years a slave. So I think that the people who really can affect this are the studios who market these movies and who have an Oscar contender. And if people are smart, like distributors who are picking up movies at Sundance, like a 24 or Fox searchlight, or even later in the year, will say, Oh, well, the odds of getting attention for a film from a black director or starring Asian people or whatever are going to be higher because people are going to be looking out for something to make up for this being a really shitty year for diversity. Oh, interesting. So, the, so you think it's going like, to just affect campaigns? Like we're going to lead with this or you think it's going to start affecting purchases? I think campaign is a thing that's going to be, well, I think it's a purchases at Sundance for sure. Like 
the example that I keep thinking of, and I don't know if this film is premiered yet, it might have by the time people hear this, is this movie Birth of a Nation that Nate Parker directed and stars in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, oh God, now I'm trying to remember the, the name of the historical figure that's about. Um, oh, I've read about it. It's a, like a black man who leads a revolution yeah, during the Civil War. Yeah, and uh, it's called Birth of a Nation, which is an incredible thing to title your, oh, Nat Turner. Uh, the slave rebellion in the 1830s. Um, but if that movie is good and it like it has that narrative behind it, like that is something that you could say, okay, so here, we're going to bring this out there and we're going to subtly or not so subtly say to Academy voters, like, hey, people got really mad at you last year. Here's a really good movie that we're backing. Maybe this is your chance to do something better this time. Yeah, chances are people won't get mad at you if you vote this way. <laughs> yeah, which they could have done with Creed, which is, you know... I loved Creed. It was on my top 10 and it was such a good movie that seems so suited to the Oscars that it will always kind of break my heart that it didn't get anywhere. But you know, you can start again next time. And this, again, I'm saying this really cynically as if like, this is all about just getting awards for movies. Like the real thing you have to fix is giving more movies to directors of color and not having it be white guys in baseball hats, handing franchises over to more white guys in baseball hats, which is something that like, that's like the huge systemic change that will take the longest um, but in the meantime, like, I do think the whole Oscars So White controversy will reframe the way people think about what they campaign for Oscars, what they vote for, and gradually we maybe get more movies bubbling to the surface that have the potential to go that distance, and then you put money into prestige movies only if you think they'll get Oscars, so more people might put money into prestige movies starring actors of color, and it's a, it's a whole huge complicated system that I do think has the power to very slowly start changing now. Yeah, I like it. And then I that's also the fact that like the academy has done this two years in a row also means that like the people who are putting their foot in their mouth, I I I don't have a lot of sympathy for them right now, but it's also like a passing fad. These aren't like yeah. Mel, I'm not I'm not making Delpy into a Mel Gibson where I'm like, well, can't listen to that person anymore. Yeah, I mean the pe- yeah, they're like I don't know, like there's just a lot of things that white people don't think about when it comes to these issues that it's really easy to, for you to be like, well, I mean, I've had problems before. So like, I'm, just, you, you know, you've heard all this stuff. Before. It's been hard for me. Yeah. So it's a, uh, you know, you can't, it's not like you can't blame them, but that's not what the problem is. The problem is like much larger and more systemic. Um, but if those people, like there was a guy who was in uh, the first Hollywood reporter article with everyone being like, I'm not racist where he like was like, I didn't think straight out of Compton was that good. So I didn't vote for it. And I was like, okay, fine. Ideally, there are five movies with primarily minority cast that you have to choose from, and one of them you think is good enough, and then it has a chance of winning. Like, it's not just like you either vote for the black movie or you're racist. It's like here is a bunch of movies with diverse cast that you can choose from, and one of them might be your thing. Right. And uh, yes. I don't, like, know. Maybe, we don't know. I don't know how much quality plays into whatever, but right. Well, no, that's the thing. So, like, you, you need to campaign for it. So, it's quality plus a campaign of people who think that they can sell it. So, you know, maybe the Academy 10 years from now, you could sell Tangerine to, which is like, you know, there was a campaign for that movie this year, but not that big because, you know, people wisely didn't see it as a typical Oscar contender. But if you expand the ranks and bring younger people and more, you know, diverse people in, maybe Tangerine would be a contender. Yeah, I mean, I I think that the the field of movies is wide enough now to have those sorts of things. I, 
but yeah, I, I, I mean, you look at like um, like Ava DuVernay's first movie, Middle of Nowhere, or uh, Ryan Coogler's first movie, Fruitvale Station, which are these movies that were kind of big movies at Sundance that had you know, well, Middle of Nowhere had almost no campaign. Fruitvale had a small Oscar campaign that uh, didn't go as far as they could have, or as you know, movies like that with white people might have done. Like, there's definitely a lot of movies to choose from. They just need that visibility and this controversy you know, has made the Oscar changes and then might also lead to that uh, more cynical but just as important change. Yeah, I like how they poisoned the one Academy Award Leonardo DiCaprio is ever going to get. <laughs> because he's because he's beating all white people? You beat all the white people at the white Oscars. Great job, Leo. <laughs> I hope I eating mean, that bear whatever was <clears throat> worth it. I mean, many, many people have won their Oscars up against only white people, and I think we still respect them. So go, Leo. <laughs> go get that Oscar. I'm rooting for you. Oh, yeah, more, yeah. Kill out the white man. Oh, yeah, more, yeah. Kill out the white man. The white man call himself civilized. As you are listening to this, you are living in a future that I wish I was living in because you know if the truth is still out there or not with the X-Files revival. For those of you who have absolutely no idea what's going on, Fox has brought back the X-Files for a six-series miniseries run. The X-Files of the 90s, uh, let's say sci-fi procedural would be the way I'd describe it. Yeah, that's really accurate. Yeah, it was really like a two-hander between David Duchovny's Fox Mulder, Dana Scully's, uh, oh, I know, Gillian Anderson's Dana (laughs) Scully. You see, it's weird because we're now in the realm of talking about things where these people were the characters before they were the actors to me, so Mm, that's, I was really into the X-Files growing up. I was thinking about it today, I was having a conversation with my friend about the first time you could remember being on the internet, and uh, I remember... In a, being in an AOL chat room, I believe, or some sort of chat room, and talking to people on the East Coast who were watching X-Files two hours earlier because I was in the mountain time zone. And uh, the previews for that week had shown that Mulder and Scully were about to kiss, which would have been like a huge thing in the fandom at this point. This yeah. is like season five. Uh, it turned out to be an episode called Small Potatoes. And I looked back and that was in April 1997. So wow, this that's is the like, first time you remember being on the internet? Um, yeah, the second time is I remember I was on the internet and uh, Princess Di died, and so that was August that year. So 97 wow. either way. Wow, we got, a, uh, we got a computer in for Christmas 95, which, and it came with eWorld, which was like an AOL competitor that died out soon after. It took me forever to get internet out of my father for like, <laughs> and like a DVD player and all that. He's, he's slow to adapt technology. Wow, but he didn't smart. fall for beta, so ha. Hey, there you go. Who wins yeah. now? Anyway, uh, they're bringing <laughs> back the X-Files, uh, so, and it's very much uh, like a backdoor re- renewal revival, even though they're claiming it's just a six-episode series. They brought back a whole oh, bunch of writers. Oh, is that true? See, I hadn't even caught that. Like, So they're hoping that they're going to bring it back for real after this. Oh, yeah. So they brought back Chris Carter, who created it. He wrote the first and sixth episodes, and those are the so-called mythology episodes. Um, which have to do with like a greater conspiracy by the government. And reviews have come in, and apparently the first episode is not very good and is like all the reasons why we didn't like the X-Files uh, for like the last few seasons and just where they were spinning their wheels with or without David Duchovny's full commitment. And uh, But then after that, they pick, they have three or five, yes, 
no, 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 no. They have four Monster of the Week episodes before another mythology episode by Chris Carter. And those are written by people like Darren Morgan, who wrote that episode, Small Potatoes, and some other really great X-Files episodes. And the reviews on those are fantastic. Like, X-Files is back. This is what we were missing. And then Chris Carter at a huge event where he was screening the first three episodes with Kumail Nanjiani, who does the X-Files Files podcast, revealed that this season does end on a cliffhanger. And during the TCAs, he revealed that he already has written a third X-Files movie. Wow. So he's firing on all X-Files cylinders. I gotta it, say, I don't, I don't get why we need an X-Files movie at this point. Like, that seems like the, the least way that you want that to go. Well, apparently he was psyched about the X-Files and wrote the third movie, and then Fox came and was like, let's do this miniseries. And so he did the miniseries, but according to him, the third movie could still exist basically as it's written. Which is weird, because that doesn't make for a lot of character development, or... He completely like reverts the characters back to their duo version from like the '90s because the movies like put them in a relationship and had them on the run from the FBI and whatnot. I, I just like given all the ways that people can watch television and how much more likely you are to get an audience on TV. Like the idea of more X Files movies doesn't seem like what anybody wants. Yeah, and I think that the recently, even though while the show was going on, the mythology episodes garnered a lot of attention because not a lot of shows were doing that sort of myth arc drawn out over a season. Uh, The monster of the week or the standalones are definitely well remembered. Uh, Even the bad ones for even just being fun, bad. So I think like that's why I would describe it as like a sci-fi procedural is because the most fun it had, it was just with the dynamic of going through the paces. And I think that coming back would definitely work because we've had, you know, like, Sleepy Hollow and Fringe, which have mm-hmm. both succeeded on the exact same formula as the X-Files. Um, yeah. So I think it's there, and I would like to see more Gillian Anderson and David Duchovny, because I really don't like David Duchovny in any other project, Most people besides don't. being Fox Mulder. So you're hoping for a full renewal and the X-Files is back on TV on a weekly basis? Uh, I mean, that would be nice. I would like to see these six episodes, because the reality is I, like, flick through Netflix this weekend to try to like watch some highlights and there's so many highlights and so many episodes and because it's tied to like my past I don't know if that's reclaimable and so Mm, it might be like Heroes Reborn where it's like oh you like something we're gonna drive this into the ground for you just to make sure it's dead yeah if they brought back Lost at this point I really don't think I'd be happy about it oh man I loved Lost and I loved how Lost ended and I don't really want more of it they should do the idea, which I think we had at the end of the special, where they do a mini-series event, and then it, and at the end, it reveals that it's a lost tie-in. Maybe that's how 10 Cloverfield Lane ends. Oh, my God. That, okay, hang on. I take it back. That would be incredible. <laughs> she looks if outside, they, and it's just the smoke monster. Or if they got on, like, if they all got on an oceanic flight at the end of it, and, like, everyone's there. And, or, or, hang on, except one of the things, which is a spinoff about Ben and Hurley running the island. Ooh, or, or they're on the island. Yeah, when they're like uh, when they're in charge of the island after everybody leaves. Yeah, yeah, that'd be a good day of six mocking for Dan Trachtenberg. Come on, hey, hey, Dan, Trachtenberg. Shoot, shoot another ending for your film. We just came up with a good idea. <laughs> We've finished it. Cut and print. <laughs> anyway, X Files. It's on now on Fox. It's gonna be. It's gonna settle into Mondays. You've seen, I think, three ep- three ep- two episodes at this point, listeners. Uh, it's gonna settle into a Monday time slot on Fox. Um, and uh, I'm sure I'll be talking about it more in the future. Yeah. In a world where no one knows what works on television anymore, why not X-Files? Yeah. 
Or Full House. Or Full House. Oh, God. That's coming at the end of the month. From Sundance, the film festival, David and I, I think we probably had an introduction, but we can't know for sure because uh, we didn't hang out with Katie and Dave while they were recording the rest of this episode. Yes, we're, we're here in Park City, Utah, back for another round of Sundance. David, I saw somebody tweet at you asking why everything was so kind of like middling this mm. year at Sundance, that if we were having a lukewarm festival compared to previous years, what, are, what is your take there? What's the narrative of this year's uh, Sundance? I can only speak from my narrative. I, I tend to judge film festivals based on, not on the uh, average quality of the film I see, but on the number of sort of home runs that really knock your hair back and will stick with you. Um, and by that metric, I think the Sundance has been disappointing. Uh, last year, within you know 24 hours of getting here, I'd already seen World of Tomorrow and The Witch, uh, which were... Well, The Witch will be one of my favorite movies of this year, and The World of Tomorrow was one of my favorite movies of last year. Uh, and I was sort of really galvanized by both those right away. This year, I've seen very few bad movies, which is nice in its own way. But uh, I have not seen very much that has really uh, shaken me, which is unfortunate. Do you think that's... I mean, I guess we don't know why that is. It just <laughs> the mystery happens. of my It just happens to taste. be. But th- there are movies that seem to be getting people riled up, even getting the Oscar prognosticators all bonered up for mm, the year. So boners. Huge boners. boners. <laughs> I, just, um, I just noticed looking at the trail map that's sitting in front of us for one of these mountains that there's a black diamond run called Glory Hole. That's interesting. That seems like a Sundance movie yeah, in itself. It could be. Wait, so we... we Salsa movies are getting huge amounts of buzz. What do you think of um, Manchester on the Sea, the uh, Kenneth Lonergan movie that it's two and a half hours long. It's very, you know, not a lot happens. It's basically Casey Affleck plays this dad who is grieving for reasons I'll leave uh, unknown because it's a kind of thrill to to unravel this story and the backstory kind of cross cuts between his past with his brother taking care of his kids being a great dad and then whatever happened now in the present he is well, alone I mean, and and working in boston as a as a fix-it man and you could say his brother died i mean that is that's his not, brother is dead his brother dies and he goes to their childhood home of manchester by the sea uh to um essentially tidy up affairs and uh ends up forming a, a deeper relationship than he previously had with his brother's son, who's played by the kid from Moonrise Kingdom. Not the main kid, but like the evil kid, who is yeah. also in Grand Budapest Grand Hotel for a hot second. I was talking to someone who said that kid is on every like superhero wish list, yeah. YA wish list, but he just never gets the part. The kid is fantastic. He's so good in this movie. Yeah. Um, wait, I'm going to look up his name. Lu- uh, Lucas, Lucas Hedges. Hedges yeah. Yes. Um, I think he's, you know, people are kind of raving about... Casey Affleck, this brooding performance, this really introspective performance. But this kid, Lucas Hedges, is, I thought, the real phenomenal part of this. Uh, You know, watching his dad die, but not being totally, you know, his life was already turbulent. And now you have 
new personalities coming in there, him trying to balance his, his the life that he enjoys, you know, dating lots of girls <laughs> and being in a band and having a silly teenage life. Um, I think what... Were you a big Margaret fan? Yeah. I wasn't Your like team Margaret. team Margaret, but... <laughs> I, I have a lot of respect for that movie. That that movie has huge ideas um, and is very rambly and jagged in its editing. And I, f- I see a lot in common between that and Manchester by the Sea. There's some weird like editing and filmmaking choices in this movie down to like what you're not supposed to do. Uh, have a wide shot and then cut in on that exact same angle. I saw that exactly really once. But disorienting. <laughs> once? Yeah. No, it happens many times. There, I wouldn't be surprised if there were more tweaks to be made to this movie. Um, it's not quite two and a half hours, and if anything, I wouldn't mind if it were. If it were. Uh, it's like 135 minutes. But, you know, it's, it's exceptional stuff. I, I think it's... Uh, one of the things it does so well is show exactly what Matt was saying about how life does and does not go on um, about sort of how grief in a lot of senses can be unbeatable, but there's so much levity uh, and life to this movie. It's very, very funny. Um, I think that it, it really sort of simmers the entire time. It doesn't, a lot of people were, were sort of beside themselves afterwards, but I think that as per Lonergan's nature, uh, it's very, it doesn't go for those big like swing for the fences moments. Right. It's very low key. Um, Once upon a time, this probably would have been like a television show, and we're now at the point where the movie or the TV shows are so high concept that the only place you could tell this story is kind of like a big, roomy, crackling feature. Yeah, and you know, it's it's nice to. Uh, I think there's something very focused and precise about seeing the story told as a feature film rather yeah. than as a, a miniseries or something like that. And 135 minutes, or maybe if there's a slightly longer version, whatever the case might be, I think just having. Uh, just sitting there and going through this whole... Uh, it, it's so imperceptible sort of how Casey Affleck's character grows from the beginning to the end. And I think that if it were not in this format, it might be hard to notice. I think it's uh, it's a matter of inches. I, I think for me, it's hard to come away from Sundance feeling like I've seen one of the best movies of the year already, but I walk away from Manchester by the Sea wanting to see it again. Mm. And I feel like maybe that is a, a promising... Manchester by the Sea will definitely be one of the year's better or best films it's hard to say exactly right where it will fall but uh a film of this caliber um you don't really have to uh, be a victim of the sundance vapors to see that it's going to to still resonate in november or whenever it opens we started the festival with uh like a pair of kind of bizarre serial comedies uh swiss army man Mm -hmm. was the first one which um, all the Daniel Radcliffe mother obsessives uh, were not were not too pleased by a movie that starts with Daniel Radcliffe floating in the ocean and farting for five minutes, farting so hard that he becomes uh, a rideable jet ski. Well, he's dead. He he's is a dead. corpse, and Paul Dano is, ha- is suicidal on a stra- stranded on a desert island, and he sees this corpse, and the corpse is farting more than any person has ever farted before it's a brilliant effect it's a brilliant <laughs> special effect and uh and Dan, uh, Dan, uh paul dano's character decides that he can ride daniel radcliffe's fighting <laughs> to corpse to safety yeah he's on a deserted island but so so people i think this really split people i was surprised too because i enjoyed it quite a bit maybe it doesn't stick the landing doesn't really have anywhere to go in terms of an ending, but this is kind of a, a spirit journey yeah, about you know being an independent person, being finding love in the world, finding friendship, maybe being a parent has a lot on its mind for being 
uh, loaded with fart jokes and vomiting jokes and pratfalls uh, that kind of live up to the, the, the Jim Carrey legacy. Just Daniel Radcliffe is so spastic. Um, why, why why is this such turning people off? You know, what what is the problem that people have with this movie or that maybe you had with this movie? <laughs> uh, I, I like really this like movie. Uh, I, I think it's, you know, the, what, you really have to ask what the problem that people have with this movie is. <laughs> I think uh, there people were running for the hills when they. I walked into it thinking that it was like a very sober, serious survivor drama, not unlike like maybe like an indie revenant. Uh, and what I got was very and immediately different. Uh, but I think that it bends its those guys Daniels who directed it are known for their short form music video work. Uh, really challenge themselves to take the stupidest ideas possible and tease from them something interesting and, and meaty and. Uh, and heartfelt and I think that this is sort of uh, a calling card for them this is really sort of an ethos that, that captures the ethos of what they do they do find a lot of heart in this movie yeah they, there's heart and fart some very interesting conversations about sexuality oh my pizza's done um, there's a really interesting conversation about sexuality and I and of course that's tethered to Daniel Radcliffe having a raging boner going back to boners the theme of this segment um, using that as a compass I always I thought that was Particularly clever. Oh. And, and the second movie that we saw on that first night, I think you saw Wiener Dog on the I first did. night. Todd Salance's new movie, um, which I think is my favorite of the festival. Really? As it stands now. Um, and definitely left people quite disturbed. A lot of angry reactions to that one. I think because, for the most part, it's a very funny, very... Um, it's a Todd Salance movie. Like it may, yeah. it, the log line But I thought like... it had a lot of insight into... This movie is about... So it's it's basically four segments uh, tethered together by the the wiener dog, um, this dog that keeps getting passed around, or maybe not even passed around, just keeps popping up in different people's lives. And you know, I think Salance has a lot to say about how we learn uh, about death, mortality uh, through our pets, because we get to see them die before almost anything else. Uh, when we're kids, when we're adults, when we're really old, um, pets are such a huge part of our life. And he has a lot to say in, in a very funny way, in a very serious, grave manner sometimes. And then at the end of the movie, he goes full salons. He does. fucks the... everyone. And, uh... and of course, everyone left the movie like, this is horrible. There were a lot of people walking out being like, no one who like, oh, no. Oh, no one who likes pets should see this movie. Well, like, That's the, the logline of the movie is sort of hilarious because, you know, anyone who knows Todd Salons or seen his films uh, can understand. And to not take it at face value, the logline was like... A, an adorable dash hound is travels across the country bringing joy and comfort to the people he meets and then you see the movie and it's uh it is you know very much a film by the guy who made happiness and welcome to the dollhouse and uh life during wartime even and uh yeah i think patches compared it to Roy Anderson's The Pigeon Who Sat on a Branch Reflecting on Existence. <laughs> that I, both offended you and maybe you saw no, some. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's baseless. Uh, <laughs> I think that there are some very explicit connections that really provoked him to make that connection. But uh, um, yeah, it's, I think people who enjoy Roy Anderson may find this Tatalans particularly appealing. There's an amazing, Julie Delpy has an amazing monologue in the first segment, which is worth the price of admission alone. There's a Danny DeVito bit, which is 
thinly veiled autobiographical for salons, which is interesting. Although, trigger warning, there's like a two-minute dolly shot just on poop. Yeah. So. Uh, and uh, the, there's an intermission in this movie. Yeah. The movie's only 90 minutes long, but there's an intermission in which you are not intended to leave. Uh, that is maybe the highlight of the film. <laughs> I, I want a Wiener Dog Roadshow yeah. edition, 70 millimeter, <laughs> complete with uh, intermission. It, it's definitely Todd Salon's best film in a while. Um, so what, what are you walking away from the festival feeling like? This is this is top tier stuff for give it a, maybe a second chance. You want to know, you want to see it again. You want to talk about it. Yeah, well, in Manchester by the Sea for sure. Uh, also, the James Seamus film Indignation, which he adapted from Philip Roth's story. You know, James Seamus used to run Focus Features. He wrote a lot of Ang Lee screenplays and produced those films. Uh, and he, even though he's no longer with Focus Features and Focus Features is now doing something else entirely, he is still making Focus Features. <laughs> Indignation, set in the 50s, Logan Lerman stars as a, a kid who dodges the Korean War by going to college. She's the only Jew in, uh, well, one of the only Jews really in his college in Ohio. He meets a girl who with a crazy past played by Sarah Gadden, who you might know from some of David Cronenberg's recent movies, who's awesome. Uh, and... The movie, it's, it's an epic of Jewish guilt. I think of it as like the Jewish atonement. It, it, the, tonally, that is pretty spot on as to what it is. Um, and I enjoyed that immensely. Uh, and Lionsgate bought that, and that'll be out later this year. Also, Robert Greene's documentary is uh, a less applicable term uh, than it has been to even his previous films. But Kate Plays Christine, which is one of two films at this festival. Robert uh, Greene directed Actress. You've right, seen right. that on Netflix or something. Uh, this is one of two films at this festival about a esoteric incident in the history of American media when a woman named Christine Chubbuck shot... It was a news anchor in Sarasota, Florida in 1974, uh, shot herself in the head live on air one morning and died a few hours later um, and is sort of been... Uh, almost an urban legend, although it happened. It's uh, her story is has always never really connected with the mainstream, never really been something that everyone knows, but it's always uh, sort of American lore. And now that's one of two films that's about it here. The other is by Antonio Campos, who made Simon Killer. It's called Christine. It stars Rebecca Hall. That's a very straightforward drama um, that sort of just goes through the last few months of her life. Whereas Kate plays Christine, stars Christine Scheele as herself, um, with under the auspices of, of sort of making a movie about Christine Chubbuck, and so it's sort of like the making of this movie that will never actually get made. Right, the um, research of what it goes right. into to play such a character. Right, and they're not actually making, there's no, like, project that they're aiming towards, which Although is Although there are scenes of the movie. Right, but they the never movie. pretend, like, right. it's, like, for some other film. It's just, like, this is just the journey <laughs> that they're on. Um, and I thought that uh, that film was tremendous. I, th- I thought Kate Play- yeah. Plays Christine was such... Um, it- it's really, inadvertently, a harsh fuck you to Christine well, because it's so much about so the ethics of making you know, this like movie. Sundance programming both of these movies clearly to be considered in the context yeah. of one another. Even the uh, when I saw Kate Plays Christine, the um, intro was, you know, we do have another movie here and we hope that it's challenging these like perceptions of the movies that you're watching. But if you're the filmmakers, like, yeah. I, you must be a little frustrated by the whole thing because, yeah, Kate Plays Christine totally dismantles the idea of the the narrative driven Christine and and kind of for me paints it as as exploitation. Yeah. Well, I walked out. I saw Christine the narrative version first. I didn't see mm. the kind of uh, uh, postmodern version, uh, and so I could only go off that you know the experience of watching that film. And I just found it very exploitive. If your entire movie is driving towards this one act of violence, then that's what you're like waiting to see, right? Like what else? 
that movie had nothing going on for me dramatically yeah. or like below the surface, whereas Kate Place Christine is not only just about how did this happen to this woman, but like how do we get ourselves into that headspace? How do we, and how does and what the world right, impact yeah, us? Yeah, what too? right do we have to see this footage? What, uh, you know, how do we sort of um, exhume somebody like that through our media? Uh and so on, like, what is this hunger that we all have to see this morbid sensationalist uh, part of our culture that you can see? Well, I'll use that. I'll double back, double back to that in a second as a way to segue to another movie that I really liked here. But um, yeah, I think uh, Christine becomes this sort of more traditional drama about a woman trying to have it all, but it, its head is in so many different places that it doesn't really focus on that until the final beat. Um, there, it's frustratingly elliptical in a way that the more sort of abstract by definition Kate Place Christine is not uh, it is really interesting to see the two films in dialogue with one another I think it's Christine is is uh, almost validated by its uh, the value that it brings to Kate Place Christine but not the other way around well I mean um, oh god I'm forgetting her name the actress Rebecca Hall Rebecca Hall is phenomenal in the movie yeah she's good I mean she has just so much energy and I think she burrows into that character in a lot of interesting ways that that don't seem apparent on, on page, perhaps. Yeah. But she's not given the material. She just takes it there anyway. Yeah, well, uh, but Wiener, okay. uh, the documentary about Anthony Wiener, uh, is another film about that, that very explicitly tackles uh, sensationalism in journalism and media, how New Yorkers took this guy who was... Um, and it's not an entirely sympathetic, Doc, despite what the tone of what I'm about to say might sound. Uh, took this guy who was really fighting for the middle class in New York City, but had some difficulty keeping his dick in his pants or taking, you know, resisting taking photos of his dick when it was uh, bulged in his underwear uh, and cut off their nose despite their face. I mean, they really eventually uh, ganged up on him. He did not handle it particularly well. Uh, I like to say that he, he was... a incredibly valuable and passionate legislator, but a terrible politician. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I think that that's, it's sort of an American tragedy because it's unfortunate that we, by virtue of sort of not responding to our better, the angels of our better nature, uh, can't parse between the two. We can't say like, here's a guy like, yes, his personal life is weird. Um, and he has some issues clearly, uh, and is a glutton for punishment. And the great line of this movie is when the filmmakers are like, why did you let us make this movie? <laughs> and he's like, I don't know. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, he was clearly and sincerely fighting for the right cause, uh, fighting for the people of a city who he cared about. And he was tirelessly trying to help. Um, and seeing the inside of his relationship with his wife, Huma, who works with Hillary Clinton and eventually has to choose between sort of supporting her husband's campaign in its final days versus uh, even though Hillary Clinton that they may risk a spot in Hillary's campaign. Um, it's it's just such an awesome it reminded me a lot of that documentary from last year uh, about Buckley and Gore Vidal. Oh, uh, um, what was it? Best of Enemies? Best of Friends, best of friends, yeah. best event, whatever it was called. But that and that movie was very superficially about just sort of how we let political discourse in this country be sidetracked by this sort of circus of of commentary. And this takes that and applies it practically uh, in a very real, more visceral, more unbelievable. How the fuck did this happen? Sort of way. Uh, it, it is a great. Mo- it's not just like a great 
slice of a great portrait of something that happened in recent history and gives you sort of insider access. It's a great movie. It's interesting. I feel like I've seen a bunch of documentaries this year that I wouldn't describe as maybe great films, you know, uh, with real cinematic prowess, um, but that they just ride great stories. Uh, you and I saw Newtown yes. right before the um, festival, which is an obvious tearjerker. Um, just a devastating movie interviewing the, the families of the victims of the Sandy Hook shooting, um, which I thought was a very sensitive take, you know, not not overtly politicizing it, um, but just going through... Almost too sensitive. Yeah, I mean, and it gets a little lost at the end because it's like it be- naturally becomes very political. Um, but it's not even that. I just think that, like... It, too sensitive is probably not the right way of saying it because, of course, there's an you know, infinite reservoir of, of sympathy that you have for these people and uh, and for future victims that yeah. we really need to uh, really need to protect. But um, a great film. Uh, no, it's, 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 it's a, a historical a, document. Yeah, it's necessary. It, it's a more valuable document than it is a documentary. It's it's uh, um, heartbreaking beyond measure. But um, yeah, it just it doesn't it doesn't quite do anything with that other than just say like man this is an unfathomable tra- tragedy and because we're so complacent about it it will probably happen again um so and, uh, i would hope that every legislator in the country sees it i don't necessarily think that you might have to and and in lighter fare i suppose i mean actually it's not it seems like it would have been but it's not uh, is this documentary tickled did you see i didn't but tickled? i hear okay. great things so it's this new zealand uh, reporter and he stumbles upon these uh, competitive tickling videos uh, very funny haha and he starts investigating them and lo and behold it is this kind of devious cover up <laughs> For like weird porn, and the people involved are just absolutely nuts. There's all sorts of aliases involved, and he goes to America. He comes to New York to investigate this this web, uh, this global web of tickling, uh, just devious tickling operation. And it is a gr- another great story. Probably better if it was like a This American Life episode than a documentary, because mm. they don't have. The, the the tact to actually make a great film mm. out of it, but well, speaking of very nuts, funny. Uh, oh, yeah, <laughs> there's a film here by Penny Lane who made R. Nixon called Nuts, which is about a guy who, uh, I can't remember exactly, early in the 20th century, essentially started uh, selling goat semen to, like, from you know, goat oh, no, testicles. He was, he, was, he was actually taking slices of goat testicles, goat testicles and right. operating and putting right. them inside other people, right. human testicles. Uh, right, to people, men who were uh, infertile. Yes. And um, that bloomed into an empire of... Uh, he was a radio magnet. Yeah. He, was, he was everything. He was, it, was, it was Citizen Kane, but with goat nuts. Yeah, I mean, he starts... Yeah, the radio empire is amazing, and he starts selling all of these things and making all this money that are not necessarily proven to work, but it is sort of, in its way, a portrait of the, the weird side of the American dream and how that, that sort of the, the values that we hold important. I think it actually makes a really interesting double feature with Wiener. Uh, but it's, and it's this very adorably animated documentary because all, you know, all of its characters, for the most part, are long gone. And, uh, it, it, but it has great text testimony that it weaves in and, and animates. And uh, I thought that was very testimony. strong as well. Testimony. Testimony. <laughs> and then... Hey, we, what what are we doing here if we don't bring up the birth of a nation? Oh yeah, I was about to say that's probably the way to go out for this yeah. segment. Um, you know, the the largest buy in Sundance history in any festival's history. Oh really? For a Finnish film. Wow. Uh, so 
Um, Fox Searchlight bought Nate Parker's uh, Nat Turner biopic for $17.5 million. And allegedly they were offered more by yeah, Netflix. Netflix wanted, was going to give them $20 million, but they wanted to play in theaters, I guess. Um, clinging to that. Netflix and Amazon, by the way, if there is a story uh, beyond maybe the what we're about to talk about that matters from the Sundance, it's how Netflix and Amazon spent... A shit ton of money yeah. buying up over the movies. over the weekend. I tweeted a picture of the uh, or the uh, the gif of uh, Star Wars, the trash compactor. Mm-hmm. That's how I feel. Like <laughs> Netflix is one wall, Amazon's the other, and everything. We're just being squeezed by these people. I mean, Amazon bought the Wit Stillman. Uh, they bought Wiener Dog. Anything by like an established older auteur, sort of in his hey, is uh, yeah, Twilight. Or, but like Netflix is just out for. They bought pa- the Paul Rudd comedy, which. Couldn't be more yeah. straight down the middle. They also bought uh, Under the Shadow, mm. which is this Iranian horror film um, that I think you and I are both waiting to see. No, I saw. Oh, you did it's see okay. it. It's uh, okay. Many people are calling it the Iranian Babadook. Do it, you, uh, those comparisons that? are merited, but only in terms of subject and approach, not quality. Dis. Um, well, it's going to be on Netflix, so everyone can judge soon. So, yeah, lots of buying from the streaming services. But Fox Searchlight came away with this big... Uh, this big, I mean, it had an amazing reception too. Uh, well, I think the, Nate Parker, you know, there's this whole narrative that he gave up acting to like pursue making this movie and f- get all the financing. I guess giving up acting is like having five roles in the beyond the beyond the uh, what's it called, um, the rom com or not the, the romantic dramedy Beyond the Lights, Beyond yeah, the Lights. Yeah. Um, that was the last thing he did, and he gave up acting, which two year break doesn't seem that long. That's how long it takes. To make no, a movie. and there was a there was a standing ovation <laughs> for him the movie. before the movie. <laughs> right, people love this guy, um, or they just love the story of him. He had, you know, fighting fairness, to make this movie. So many of his partners, collaborators, were there in the audience, so they were really uh, um, they were leading the charge. But yes, excitement was high at this premiere, and then. I mean, it it destroyed. People fell in love with this movie really hard. Masterpiece thrown around by a few <laughs> of our colleagues. Um, and also, I, I mean, this was definitely in the air, hard to ignore, after everything the Academy has been going through yes. with their diverse or diversification. I saw many people tweeting in tandem with um, positive reactions to Birth of Nation, just saying, like, this is what we need to diversify the Oscars. Like, this is going to go all the way because and people can't, <laughs> Can't ignore it. There is no denying, uh, you know, not to go into Jeff Wells territory. There is no denying that you sort of take your life in your hands uh, as a white person saying negative things about this movie in a yeah. public space. And you know what? That's fine uh, as someone who didn't like the movie because it, it seems like a, even if this movie went on to win Best Picture at all those awards and I still didn't think it was a good movie, it seems a very small price to pay for the institutional injustices that it's fighting again. <laughs> right. Like, that's that's totally fine by me. Uh, I can't lie to... It's not my job. My job is to be honest about the films that I see. Um, I thought that this was one of the worst films at the festival in terms of its execution. I think in terms of its purpose and its sincerity, its passion, its value, um, I think it's important. I think, you know, it's beat for beat uh, Braveheart, the black Braveheart. It's, uh, and that's not me saying that. That is Nate Parker saying that uh, months ago in an interview that he was making the Black Braveheart. And I think it's wonderful that well, there is I a mean, Black from Braveheart. The, from the way that they're staging action, yeah. from the, it's the script unmissable. where he gives speech after speech, uh-huh. and, then, and then even the score. Like, I was amazed that this movie felt so glossy and felt so Hollywood, despite the yeah. whole narrative being like, I'm getting away from Hollywood to make this movie. Yeah. The score is just it feels out like of an, control Braveheart. It feels like an Ed Wick movie. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, it's Braveheart, but it's 90 minutes long. And there's a Braveheart, say what you will about it. There's a reason that film is three hours long. Mm. Uh, it needs that time to breathe. There are 
almost no scenes in this film. The the pace at which it's told, uh, not the way, not only the way that it handles time, but the way that all the relationships that could potentially be set up in this movie to have meaning sort of deteriorate uh, into the background is. I just I could not be emotionally engaged in anything that was happening in any of the relationships between uh, you know Nat uh, Turner and um, his the woman who becomes his wife and you know I think it's totally valid that he and she seldom almost never got to see each other yeah. by virtue of being slaves and I think it well it's hard to tell because of the time the temporal aspect of this there's so but, much montage in it there's and so it, it's just much. so unclear it's so clear they're working on a budget but they make 10 million dollars look like about two <laughs> uh, the movie looks hideous it looks uh, it, it does it just looks like a bad history channel film I mean it has this very cheap glossy digital cinematography um I thought a lot of the act, a lot of performances are, are terribly overblown. Um, not not Nate, uh, Nate Parker. I think he is solid. Well, that's. I was about to say, like, I end up kind of liking the movie. I, I mean, I'm not losing my mind over it. I'm not saying all the way to the Oscars or something like that. But I do think Nate Parker is really good in the movie, better than the movie he served himself yes, with, yes. which doesn't get into Nat Turner as a character almost at all. Like, I really don't get that guy. Mm-hmm. But the, the ferocity of the of the the or the momentum to get to the rebellion that he stages that we know him for it's all lost i don't understand i really don't understand the thought process into how this story was told and and i would like to know more about some of those choices but uh you know here's a guy who was uh sort of selected as a child by one of the white masters at the plantation uh to be educated to a degree to yeah. learn how to read he becomes a uh a preacher he ends up there's one line in the movie where he says that, like, for every sentence in the Bible justifying our enslavement, there's one that argues for our freedom and that we should take it. That's a fascinating concept, though. Right. It's a fascinating concept that goes entirely unexplored <laughs> in the film. He's a guy who quotes the Bible and becomes extremely violent, um, and uh, I, it does not draw that trajectory in any way whatsoever. There, as I said, the way the movie's cut, there are almost no actual scenes. Jackie Hale, Earl Haley's villain, uh, who has like two or three scenes in the movie, comes off as a complete cartoon. Um, and, you know, I, I really felt uh, that almost every creative choice in this movie was was wrong. Uh, and and I, it's, I'd like to, you know, not just from a place of white guilt, but, but sincerely say that I commend this movie for existing, the passion that it took to bring to screen. I think it's a valuable story. We need those narratives for marginalized people. Um, there can't just be the English Braveheart. I mean, I, as a as a Jew whose Jewish Braveheart is probably Exodus, like, I totally <laughs> sympathize with people who uh, want that movie and get a bad version of it and wish that it but were better. But this movie could only help that movie eventually, right? You know, like this, we, we need these movies Yes, yeah, so I think the fact that this movie exists... Uh, is not a bad thing, yeah. even in its in, even in its form. I mean, even it, though it exists in this, the fact that it sold for seventeen five million dollars, it doesn't matter that I didn't like it. Like, who <laughs> cares? I don't care. Uh, you know, I think maybe expectations to the film's quality have been exaggerated, uh, and people might be disappointed back on sea level. But if this movie makes money, if this movie gets nominated for Oscars, if it encourages these stories to be told, and so that people don't think twice about telling the black version of something, then that's fantastic. Uh, I do wish that he had hired somebody else to direct it. Mm. Um, well, that's not happening. No. <laughs> but maybe it's not too late to write a different score. Yeah, that seems fixable. Although I think the score is by Henry Jackman, who does like mm-hmm. big action movies, so I don't know if you let him go. 
Um, oh, well. Birth of a Nation, it'll come out. Everyone will see it, uh, hopefully, for Fox Searchlight, who played a lot of money for it. Um, but I, I guess that's pretty much it. Uh, David, you're going to be here a while longer yeah. at Sundance. I'm going home. Um, but we saw many more movies, and I'm sure we'll talk about them as they come out over the course of the year. But if you have any questions for us, we're here for you. Twitter. <laughs> We're happy to answer Sunday's questions. Um, so back to the end of the show. Uh, that does it for this week's Fighting in the War Room. We will not have a review segment at the end of this week because uh, half of us are still at Sundance and they would just all be talking about movies that you won't be able to see for months. Or me. So let's just leave it alone for now. But we'll be back next week. All of us uh, back together in, at one time, hopefully. Uh, in the meantime, Dave, who are you? Oh, I'm Dave Gonzalez. I spell my first name D-A-7-E, which is also my Twitter handle. You could read my writings at geek.com and latino-review.com and hear my various podcasts at fightinginthewarroom.com, which is also the website for this here podcast where you could comment on episodes. Those comments will be cross-posted to facebook.com slash fightinginthewarroom where you could also uh, write on our wall and get in arguments that Patches will immediately respond to if you call them out to, apparently. So check us out on all these social places for more fighting in the war room. Uh, uh, Matt Patches and David are looking you know where to find them. Let them handle it themselves. Uh, but yeah. I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com and on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. Twitter's also where we are all talking and fighting with each other and uh, talking about this week's lightning round question, which you can answer. We won't have an episode to read it on, uh, but you can answer it and talk to us about it. What was it, Dave? In honor of the finest hours, what is your favorite boat movie? Boat movie! Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. I can't wait to see Swiss Army again. Kill all the white men! Kill all the white men!